Today marks the 100th episode of OWC Radio. And what better way to spend it than by interviewing the CEO and founder of OWC, Mr. Larry O'Connor. Respected worldwide for his numerous accomplishments in the world of technology, Larry remains modest, personable, and dedicated to making his company and the world a better place for all of us. In fact, in 2020, he was named one of the top CEOs on comparably a list of 50 that was called from over 10 million ratings across 60,000 organizations. I spoke with him about his rise to success from the early days as a tech-oriented team to the start of OWC, which was bootstrapped and remains privately owned even today. We talked about how he has achieved his success his hiring and firing challenges, establishing a workable structure for a multinational corporation, and his long-standing president, Jen Soule. Success in the tech industry follows a similar path to most major corporations. However, in this last year, there have been serious challenges, tax rates fluctuating, supply chains disrupted, and many more. In the middle of all of this, however, Larry O'Connor and his company, have found the time and resources to help others from Nashville musicians to films with a strong environmental message to charitable organizations that work toward making this a better world. And even avid follower and lover of space technology, I suspect we'll be getting communiques from a spaceship in the not too distant future. So if you're interested in the technology hardware and software that OWC offers, Go to MaxSales.com and listen into this interview if you want to know more about how to be a very successful entrepreneur. This is Serena Catania. Stand by. This is going to be fun. It's time for OWC Radio. Tech Talk with Creatives. Conversations with host Serena Catania. Larry, it's always nice to see you. Welcome back to OWC Radio. Hey, a pleasure to be here, Serena. This is actually a very special interview. We are, this is our 100th interview for the show since you restarted it at NAB, I believe NAB 2019, right? Um, I think that's right. Yeah. So we were... The time flies. <laughs> there was no NAB in 2020, so it couldn't, it couldn't have been then. Right? I know. And so there we were in this booth at NAB and people were coming and going and it was wonderful. And I just, um, I wanted to to talk with you on this episode, obviously because you're the father of OWC Radio, and also because I've been, for the last few years, watching you very carefully, and especially with the challenges of the last year or two, you're such a successful CEO, and I thought that we could talk about the who, what, when, where, and why of all of that, and um, I have some questions for you about that. We all know the classic story of you as a young teenager in your garage and tinkering with electronics. But how did that progress in terms of your younger years? You were 14 at the time when you first started the company, but even before that. So can you talk to me for a minute about your family and how they supported you through the process? And Or did they not support you and you said, I'm doing it anyway? Tell me about the origins of all of that. Yeah, sure. You know, it, it goes back to I call it kind of a stroke of luck. I mean, my parents won you know, a computer at a uh, 
in the event they went to, it was an Atari 400XL. I had a cassette deck, which you used to store code. And my mom, you know, it came with a couple of games, but my mom, my mom had said, you're not going to use this for games. And she got me, she drove me towards programming and ultimately you know, said, I can tinker with it. You know, my dad was the kind that, you know, pull out all the instructions and got to study it for X period of time. And in fairness, he was an early adopter of technology. I mean, we lived in the middle of nowhere country and, and certainly you wouldn't look for a technology company to uh, you know, rise up in Woodstock, Illinois. There was really people, there was some use to technology there, but it was certainly by no means a technology mecca. And I'm not knocking, I mean, it's, it's a, it was a great place to grow up. You know, it's in the country, you know, but it certainly it wasn't uh, you know, San Francisco or San Jose, or let's say it was not a, it was not the Silicon Valley of, uh, of Illinois. Having said that, you know, you go towards the city into Chicago, Chicago used to have a great manufacturing base for electronics. Motorola was there, US Robotics was there, ultimately 3Com. So it wasn't completely an area, a region devoid of technology, but you know, we were really kind of out in the country, out in the sticks. And it was just dumb luck that I'd be, you know, one of the few kids in a large uh, radius that would have a computer. And I had a mother that, you know, said I'd use that computer to to learn on, not just to play games on. So both your parents were very intelligent and into tech too. What did they do for a living? Well, my mom, you know, again, my, my mom raised us. I mean, she was, how to say, she, I definitely would call her very, very intelligent. And she was fortunate that my dad could you know, support us. We lived, you know, where we live, where she didn't have to work. And she was able to tend after us and kind of at least, you know, gives us, give us kicks in the right direction, which a lot of that was, you know, a lot of time outdoors and appreciating, you know, just what was around us. And when it came to the, uh, the educational front, you know, not everything is fun and games. Let's also learn. And honestly, learning can be fun. You know, my dad, for his part, you know, I learned a great work work ethic from him. You know, my, the first thing I ever did on a computer of any, uh, you know, I guess the production value was, you know, write some code for TRS-80. Now, I would turn around and say my reward for writing code and editing and, and solving a problem for him, and this is, I guess, like 82 or 83, maybe even 81, was a job doing data entry, which was not exactly you know, what I wanted to spend my life doing. So. <laughs> But the work ethic part that came along with that, you know, working in his office, you know, you know, seeing, you know, just an environment where, you know, stuff had to get done and not always the stuff you wanted to get done, or you, I guess I really should say I was doing a lot of things like I really didn't want to be doing, you know, both drove me to have independence, but it also instilled just that work. I mean, it's, I was there, I was committed, I was going to do what you know, needed to be done. And that was instilled at a really young age. And on top of that, I also learned that, you know, food on the table and you know, everything else, you know, didn't just, you know, magically appear. You know, there's a lot of hard work you know, that went into it, a lot of personal sacrifice. And uh, that, you know, that meant something for me. And I will, I'd also say the very first opportunity I, I had to not have to do that entry anymore and have a way to be, be able to say, hey, I, I got something going. I think I'm, like, here's my notice was also a, <laughs> a, a positive, uh, a positive thing. So you actually started the company in 1988. You were very, very young. You were a teenager. What were the initial challenges? And you've bootstrapped it all these years, right? My understanding is that you have not had outside investors. You're not a public company. You're a private company. And that's pretty amazing. Yes. To this to this day, we, uh, we remain a private company. As we move into the future and really look to explode, and we'll see just how that uh, how that unfolds, but yeah, th- as far as you know, the, the biggest challenges you know, weren't so much. I mean, like the capital start was was relatively small. I honestly, was able to 
finagle a credit card, which I won't go, get into, which ultimately was the uh, was the initial funding source. And then beyond that, I mean, the challenges really were you know, just dealing with customers, especially you know at age. I mean, the internet made that possible. You know, got online, was advertising in a mall, and then America Online mall classified that nobody at that time was using, and used chat rooms and electronic communication for a lot of these things. You know, you find yourself saying you know, "we" instead of "I." Talking to customers, you know, we use the company, even though, even though for certainly a period of time, you know, I'd be the only person that was we. But nonetheless, you know, it, it, it's I can't even you know the, the biggest challenge is just you know keeping the energy in and, and staying focused and you know not uh, not giving up or not you know throwing in the towel. It's other things. Right? I think every business, every everybody has challenges. Pretty much, you know, I would say very similar challenges starting up. Age was a different one, but online, you know, since people don't ask you how old you are when you're you know, giving them hopefully intelligent communication, you know, that was something, I, again, the the internet age helped me avoid. If I had to talk to everybody on the phone, certainly in person, you know, that might've been a different story, but you know, nonetheless, you know, had a solution that, you know, made a difference for people. It did what it said it would do. It was supported the way it needed to be supported and it, it made a difference. And we continue to go, I see, still say we, we continue to go from there. I think it's good to say we, because it is a we, actually, even if it's just you as a teenager sitting in your garage, you have your clients, you have your ecosystem, and you're building a culture around that. So it is we. And um, I always tell people that that say, well, to me, they say, well, you did this film or you started this. And I say, well, anybody that claims they did something by themselves is really not telling the whole truth. And that's one of the things that I admire most about you is that despite your huge success in a very, very temperamental and challenging and competitive marketplace, you've stayed Larry O'Connor and who you are. Then one of the questions I wanted to ask you is you're, you're great at relationships. You're great with the customers. You have a wonderful family. You have lots of amazing friends all around the world. How does the way you handle your relationships translate to the way you run your company? What's the culture at OWC? Well, we don't exist without our team. I mean, we don't exist without our customers. We don't exist without the people that make OWC, OWC. So in terms of that, I mean, it's really a, a pursuit of you know, customers for life and, and quite frankly, the right team members for life as well. I mean, we're doing everything right. I mean, everybody, you know, nobody, everybody, you know, joins and, and nobody ever leaves. I'm going to embarrass you. Talk about your awards. <laughs> everybody makes OWC what OWC is. That's both the team that we have at OWC and our customers that continue to support and inspire us to bring on you know, the next solution. Mm-hmm. If people don't need our solutions, then you know, we don't need to be here. And ultimately we don't do the right, don't bring them the solutions they need and want. Well, same ultimate end. You know, from day one, it's really a focus on the customer. And you know that includes us. I mean, OWC's own team members, myself included. I mean, we are our own customers and that does help. Now, speaking to other CEOs in this ecosystem that we're talking about today, people who are running very large companies. When you're hyper-intelligent, you're just super intelligent, you're very creative, you're very dedicated, is it hard to delegate? How do you manage to do that? A lot of major CEOs that I've talked to over the years have trouble with that. You know, They want to keep their hands on every little thing. Do you do that too? Or if not, why not? 
you know, we have enough going on here today where I, I can't, and I've been forced to dele delegate. And I will say, it, you know, compared to 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, certainly compared to 25 years ago, delegation has become easier. You know, again, you just, number one, you learn to delegate because you can't grow without delegation. And number two, you know, you begin to understand how to hire and what makes, you know, you know, the, the great people that you can delegate to that will take things, you know, further, faster and, and smarter. You know, it's a big leap it's at a certain point in, in one's career where you don't want to be the smartest person anymore. You know, it's, you want to have smarter people around you because that lets a whole heck of a lot more get done and, and see things to their, their next potential. Yeah. You know, if you can envision, if you can drive vision in people you've got, you know, who are ideally more intelligent than you are, then you can really take over the world. <laughs> You can. I think you're in the middle of doing that. <laughs> you have an amazing president, Jen Soule, who has been with the company for many years. Can you talk about her? Because you brought in a female president long before it became fashionable. Yeah, well, we do things that make sense. And we try and I I mean, it's, you know, we're, first of all, we're a very diverse organization, always have been because, you know, different people bring different vantage points to the equation. And honestly, I mean, everything comes together for us to be who we are. You know, Jen has been with OWC, you know, for getting close to 25 years and, you know, her experience, her perspectives, I mean, as somebody who's been through, you know, pretty much every aspect of OWC, you know, made her, a, made her the right choice, you know, back, I want to say, I think we did this in 2014, 2014, 2015. OWC has always been merit-based and when you apply merit, I mean, that means you end up with diversity because everybody, you know, how do I say from different backgrounds, different perspectives, different everything, you know, bring things to the table. If you're in a room of other CEOs and you're talking about how best to organize a company to keep it moving smoothly, what advice would you give them? Every company is different. You know, for us, you know, we, I think the most important thing is a structure in ways that do not allow the formation of silos. You know, one of our greatest challenges you know, was going beyond just being a Woodstock-based organization, a single location-based operation. When we opened up in in Austin, when we opened up in Las Vegas, when we you know, expanded to you know other continents, I certainly took for granted or, or failed to you know recognize you know what made OWC OWC from a culture point of view. Honestly, it's pretty much startup lessons for the first couple of years down here you know, with the personnel, and it's not just you know hiring. You know, the right person in terms of a skill point of view to succeed is also making sure from a culture point of view, the vision aligns with uh, the organization and, and also with you in terms of what the role is going to be. And people are wondering how they make those decisions. So I think this is very good advice for others, Larry. And I think it's something that as someone running a big company, you have to face. But on the flip side, you do have a company with managers around the world who've been with you for a very long time. Let's talk for a minute about the challenges of your particular workflow. I mean, you have design, you have manufacturing, you have delivery, you have marketing that has to be done. So the whole pipeline for you is very, very technical and things like floods or chip shortages or disc shortages can... Tariffs. Pardon me? I said tariffs, sure. Exactly. space, all these fun things. Exactly. So pick the one biggest challenge and how you as an executive running a company reacted to that and what you did to sort of change your pipeline so that you could still deliver to your clients and make it work. And if you couldn't, 
what did you tell your client? When things are flowing the way they're supposed to flow, logistic and supply chain is, is relatively straightforward. I mean, it's quite frankly, there's probably a, a lot of give and take where you, know, you can keep the front you know, pretty smooth and you know, the customer side of the equation you know, relatively uninterrupted and you know, without you know, real visible consequence, even if you're, you're dealing with things behind the scenes. And we've been working, especially as we went from, you know, again, a single location in the U.S. to you know, supporting better supporting you know, the world with different locations and you know, multiple distribution points to bring your logistics up to a brand new level. And that even, bef- even you know, before the impacts of supply chain hit, you know, we really started investing in our supply chain logistics team, you know, educating, mentoring, and you know, bringing in some new talent that had experience that we just didn't have. I mean, you don't know what you, you don't know until... Well, you learn about it. And even the stuff that we're, we've been adding before everything that you know, we've layered on and I think substantially improved with our, just our ability to supply and maintain you know, a good logistical flow. When I talk to other companies, you know, it's completely foreign and it's a completely new experiences. And for us bringing on you know, a heavier, deeper level of logistics in terms of our own team, component and, and how to say capability. Now today, what we're dealing with in, in the midst of you know, just absolutely a, a perfect storm of, of everything that could possibly impact supply and logistics happening, we can keep that supply going, you know, whether it's a, you know, extending, uh, say, how we ration chipset supplies we have, stocking additional chipsets, making sure that, I mean, where we're building different pieces and parts. I mean, I can't even go into the details. You know, the, the biggest impacts we have are on some of our newer products where well, we couldn't forecast. And some of these chipsets we couldn't even get you know, a year ago. They, they didn't exist yet. And unfortunately, you know, when you, you can't produce things ahead of time that don't exist and that, that creates problems. But nonetheless, you know, from a logistical point of view, you know, we've learned a lot. We've, you know, we've substantially enhanced our team and our processes and, our, and just everything about you know, what makes supply work. So as we get past this really difficult time, it's going to be pretty, uh, it's amazing how we'll be able to apply this and have even greater knowledge to be more efficient, deliver ideally better costs and, and, and just a better overall operational efficiency, you know, when things normalize a bit, but it's been fun. I mean, it's not just the supply chain. It's, you got the tariff to deal with. You got all these different tax rules changing. I mean, it's a real, I mean, you really got to be ahead of everything and there's, when you know something's coming down the pike, you deal with it today. You know, sales tax in the U.S. is something that, you know, we watched very carefully being proactive on anything that affects your business, anything that's going to be a requirement for your business. It's much easier to deal with it ahead of time than it is to uh, have to react after the fact. And from that came a much greater awareness of just what all the individual states were doing even before that, that one ruling came about. And in general, you know, anything in a regulatory front, trying to stay proactive and dealing with it versus being at risk of, you know, being blindsided. You know, make sure you're using tools that protect you. If you're a larger company, be aware of, you know, what you're stepping into and don't be caught, you know, by surprise in some state statute or, you know, whether it be sales tax, income tax, whatever it may be. It's pretty crazy out there. I mean, it's, it's you know, there's lots of good intentions everywhere. Good intentions, you know, don't get the job done and good intentions, good intentions usually get you into trouble. Don't leave yourself vulnerable. Along the short of it is it's much more fun and much more effective just to know, yeah, this is a condition doing business here. Get set up for it, be ready for it and keep building the business versus having to you know, worry about playing catch up or, you know, fixing, a, you know, having to deal with a mess that has something to do with, with the past. You know, we learned a lot. I guess I say, you know, over the years, I could see in certain respects was 
pretty lucky with a, a lot of the things, a lot of learning experiences. When we did make mistakes that we could have prevented, you know, they were when we were smaller and they were easy to uh, easier to to deal with. Honestly, I'm glad we made some of those mistakes. You know, make mistakes when you're small, don't make them when you're big. As you get bigger, you definitely want to make sure that you avoid all mistakes and you're ahead of the curve because the, obviously bigger bigger organization, you know, bigger impact from you know what you know those learning experiences may bring. I think you're a better CEO because you have been there from the beginning and you have built every aspect of it so that you know everything. You know the manufacturing, you know the delivery, you know customer service, you know definitely know the technology. I've listened to you and spoken to you. You can dive deep under the hood for any of the products you manufacture. So I think it's a combination of knowledge and being able to pivot quickly when you need to, because that's what I observed during the chip shortage. Uh, weren't there a couple of companies, I don't know if we can mention them by name, that started buying up all the chipsets the minute there was a rumor that there may be a shortage coming? And so when things like that start happening, you running a company, you you would know about that sooner than anyone uh, in the pub- general public would. Because we already want to have our buying done before that uh, that starts, yeah. and typically, you know, that is the uh, is the case. Yeah. But even there, there's things. I mean, there's all sorts of things you can't, you know, predict. Unfortunately, even when you have standing orders, even when you're way ahead of the curve. But the good news about being way ahead of the curve, if there is an additional delay added, you know, maybe it was a 24 week lead, and now suddenly that's going to be pushed out to 40 weeks or 50 weeks. Now, it's certainly something we can accommodate because we were already planning to have you know that extra buffer. And that's the other thing that's a big leap for, I think, a lot of people, especially if you're dealing with any kind of supply chain that's more than just, oh, it's in stock, you order it, and it's just the time from order to delivery that you're waiting on. You know, and I've, this has been a challenge, and this is, again, where we've really beefed up just how we work and communicate within our, within our own team. You know, and I've seen it, I've honestly seen it over and over. You know, I've done it, Jen's done it. Uh, in terms of managing our, our different componentries, you know, new people, when they first get into it, you know, two months, three months, four months, six months, seems like a long time. <laughs> and the reality is, you know, when you're at even with a lot of things, when you're at the six month mark between you know, a supply point, you're already right on the edge. It's not a long time. You, you, that is your, your, your red line. You know, not another, you know, few weeks, not certainly near where the product is even going to exhaust. I mean, and that's a, just a, a way of thinking that, you know, it's seen it over and over again, where it just takes people sometimes, you know, multiple times just to get it, where you're looking at something going, what's going on here? We're, we're, we're kind of, we're, we're, <laughs> and it can be corrected, but it's, it, again, it comes down yeah. to understanding and not taking things for granted just yeah. because you've done it. And I'd say, you know, there's, you know, certainly, you know, something to be said, you know, about knowing too much. And again, it goes back to, yeah, it's a balance and it's something about delegation. It makes delegation important. You want to be able to hire people you can delegate to, not people that you end up having to do work for and, you know, stay involved with. If you have to stay involved, then you've not mentored the right people, hired the right people, or empowered the right people, you know, so that your your company can grow. Absolutely. And that's a tough one. It's a big one to, to learn and, and continue to uh, evolve with. So, this question just popped into my head. If you, and um, think about it for a minute, if you were in your dream think tank, like you're in a think tank and you're talking about 
things that think tanks talk about the future, technology, where we're going, how to be better at what you do, solutions for global problems. Who's in that think tank with you just off the top of your head? <laughs> I do probably haven't even thought about this, but. You know, I'm absolutely horrible with, you know, names. I mean, that is, you know, one of my worst. Uh, worst things actually calling out people by name, recognizing no problem, but calling out by people by name. But honestly, you know, it'd be, you, I'd want people in that thing to I'd have people around me that, you know, you know, that break the mold and don't take no, or don't take impossible, you know, for an answer. I mean, then, you know, number one that comes to mind, you know, that's, you know, on the lines of you know, Elon Musk. I mean, that that's the kind of, I mean, and there's lots like Elon Musk folks that, you know, see above the fray and, you know, see a future don't necessarily aren't limited by you know what they've been told can or can't be done because what we can or what we can't do or you know how things are have worked is is definitely not should never be a limitation of you know, how things can work and should work mm -hmm. i think that you and elon think along the same lines you have that kind of brain I think it would be fun. I mean, I hope so. <laughs> I think that is a compliment. <laughs> really? I mean, I think the two of you would really have fun discussing how to solve the problems of the world. So you've been on the island with Richard Branson. Uh, what were you doing? You were judging something or this was a couple summers ago? Because I remember that you were on your way to NAB and you stopped by. Richard Branson's another interesting one. You know him quite well. What were you doing on the island there? I know him well enough. I don't, I wouldn't call, I wouldn't say I know him quite well. I mean, that's, but the Extreme Tech Challenge was an event going on. That's new companies, new, uh, I would say, and new technology that is ultimately got to be a part of the judging and the selection process of, you know, who's going to be the next uh, you know, XDC uh, winner. And that's all about, again, breaking the molds and, you know, well, what the future can be. And honestly, it's not just what the future can be, you know, what companies can actually make that future reality. So you were mentoring younger companies, younger people who were wanting to get more into the tech industry and who had products that might be innovative in the future. I think that's awesome. I think that's awesome. And that brings something else to mind. Uh, you are now in a position with your company where you're very, very successful and you can spend some time thinking about ways to help the world. And you do a lot of that. You have a lot of support for charitable organizations. I just um, interviewed Billy J. Kramer, who went to Nashville and recorded some cuts for a new album. He was like the top along with the Beatles during the Mersey Beat area. And you put some people in Nashville to work doing that. You know, you have exec produced some films. Trees of Peace was a, a unique production that needed some help during COVID. You would need help you know, a little bit before COVID that, you know, we're a great director. You know, up and coming, it was a, it was a story that needed to be told. We take so much, and it kind of ties into everything. I mean, we take so much for granted, you know, here in general, and there's, you know, history repeats itself. And in some cases, you know, we forget, you know, just how brutal history, you know, has been. And that's a film that certainly makes you look at a lot of things and, you know, really wonder about, you know, where we put priorities and how and what we complain about. There are real complaints, certainly, you know, that need to be dealt with in this country and every country around the world. But, you know, we also have a lot to be thankful for. And then that kind of rolls into, I mean, bigger issues or bigger things that affect everybody and our, everybody's prosperity. And that's, you know, quality of water, 
quality of air, you know, ultimately, you know, I say the environment as a whole and kiss the ground as well as, uh, you know, way to salvation, as well as the last place on earth, as well as, you know, African waters, European waters. And you know, I think we're also having American waters, you know, coming up. I think we put a lot of emphasis, for example, if I look at, you know, our air, water quality, environmental health, we put a heck of a lot of focus on, you know, the carbon, you know, carbon-based fuel industry in general, whether it be oil, gas. And as you really dig into the, the weeds on that one, you know, certainly there's a big contributing factor there. But, you know, it's, I, it's amazing to me during COVID, you know, how even the most green people and, the, and folks that, you know, want to really be green, you know, forgot that, you know, all that takeout food, all those Uber deliveries, all that plastic, you know, that's used and, you know, how to say to support that that particular aspect, as opposed to going and sitting and dining and, you know, how to say in a restaurant, you know, just how much waste and how much, you know, oil ultimately, which is what plastics you know, derive from or created from, I should rather say, you know, is used in that process. And then we tell, well, there's biodegradable plastic. Well, yeah, that they wanted to replace, you know, paper bags, you know, that goes back to late nineties, early two thousands. And, you know, my dad was in the, the paper industry and said, geez, I mean, this is the biggest, you know, fallacy, you know, they could possibly be pitching. This is a, this isn't, it sounds green and they, you get all these green folks behind it, but ultimately is a big play by the plastic industry, you know, managed forests. I mean, there's no perfect, if we're going to consume anything, if we're consuming consumption itself is something we can work to reduce, but you know, never mind plastic bottles, which I don't even want to talk about plastic oh bottles. Gosh. I get upset about, certainly yeah. can get upset about that, but these plastic bags, I mean, you have managed forestry, which ultimately has carbon sequestration, you know, through the growth of those trees, I mean, yes, you know, we take trees down. It's not about using old growth. It's about, I mean, most of our paper, in fact, pretty much in the U.S., all of our paper and timber come from managed forestry. So if they're producing, I mean, they're what's coming down here is growing up here. When that's grown, I mean, it's, it's rotation. And it's amazing how much carbon is sequestered, you know, by the growth of those forests. And that carbon doesn't, doesn't just release back into the... Uh, uh, into the system when those trees are cut down, it remains. I mean, there's a whole biome beneath the ground. And you know, you going back to the, these plastic bags, well, now all these damn plastic bags that break down, they were designed to, you know, effectively disintegrate. Well, they already disintegrate, they just break down into smaller pieces. And that's a huge environmental disaster right now. Mm -hmm. That's you know, another big threat to uh, marine life because these plastic particles, I mean, they're finding them everywhere. They're finding, they cross the, the blood brain barrier. They're even, it's even being suggested it's affecting uh, marine reproduction. And I, again, it's, you got to look, you know, to me, you know, kind of look deep, who are the, who's benefiting from some of the, uh, the solutions being proposed. I mean, if it's, there's a lot of business you know, interests that get manipulated, well, that are that manipulate people, I think at an emotional level to drive one, drive things one direction or another direction. And I look at, Oil, you know, it's very easy to look at oil and there's a seagull that's got oil on it. You know, oil used to bubble up to the surface. We used to have black beaches even before there was, how to say, oil rigs out in the ocean because this oil naturally, you know, came up through crevice. There's, I mean, it's in, I mean, if there's pressure, I mean, stuff releases. It's not, is it great? Oh, do I think, you know, can we get beyond oil? Is getting beyond oil good? Absolutely. But we're putting all this focus on eliminating, you know, the consumption, uh, the use of carbon-based fuels, which is part of our CO2 issue, but Meanwhile, you know, you look at Kiss the Ground, there's another one, at least the need to grow, you know, focus on what we've been doing agriculturally as a society around the world for, you know, centuries. And it really, I mean, the, the data is really coming out to say that's maybe 60 years, 
of, of farming agriculture we've got left with the soil we have, the way we're treating it. We have killed the soil. We have a system that is in, dependent on inputs, both fertilizer and pesticide. And you, know, you look out around when you go into a park or anywhere in the nature, how do those trees grow? There wasn't somebody you know, coming by and you know, putting nitrogen you know, around their trunks every year. It's a sophisticated symbiotic relationship yeah. with a, a, a another, I mean, and a handful of living soil that's, you know, that's, that's soil, not just dead dirt. You know, there's more microbes than, you know, there are stars in the frigging universe. I mean, it's insane the amount of life in healthy soil that exists. And that healthy, it's all symbiotic. The carbon that those trees and plants and, you know, vegetation period pull into the ground, sequestered, by the way, as they, you know, give us our oxygen, you know, supports as the fuel for these microbes that in turn provide, you know, the different nutrients that the vegetation requires. Even, you know, if you look at cattle, and you know, I've given up uh, you know, meat by and large, I went pescatarian, which, you know, try to get, you know, wild caught, lime caught, in addition <laughs> to everything else I did it for, I felt better. I tried it for, you know, a few weeks. And when I gave up, you know, beef and pork and, and chicken, you know, I ended up, I found myself sleeping better, waking better. And, you know, felt like I got a few years back cognitively. It's like, well, that's all by itself is, is worth it. But if you look at cattle, cattle by themselves aren't bad. It's what we've done to separate them you know, from their food source. When you grow on, you know, effectively GMO fertilized, they say pesticides fields and have them living you know, on a bare patch of dirt where they get you know, fed through feed troughs as opposed to actually you know, grazing. You know, on one side, you have a very, you know, you have a, a significant contribution to greenhouse gas. On the other side, you know, cattle that are raised uh, grazing actually are carbon negative. They're carbon negative in the sense that on managed lands, they, number one, they fertilize the land. They help aerate it with their hooves. And on top of that, and this is something I said, wow, you know, grass grows tall, it extends long roots. This is, I mean, just one little, one little part of the equation, but the roots go, the roots are sequestering. When cattle eat that grass and shorten the grass, it actually drops the long roots. And with it, I mean, it leaves behind what, what's been sequestered. Cattle move on, that grass grows, grows long again, it extends long roots again, sequestering more carbon. Now there's all these great natural processes but you know, our, the greatest solution is really beneath our feet, and kiss the ground is a great starting point to understanding and taking a look at just you know what change we can make that will you know be really beneficial you know, for the future. And that's just a matter of changing agriculture and the huge impact it has. Now we lose our land, and it's really sad. Like in East Texas, all this you know they till it and it's bare. You know, bringing back cover crops, bringing you know, eliminating monoculture, eliminating the need for inputs. It's also win for farmers. You know, economically, it's a huge win when farmers are not you know, dependent on you know, this big, heavy cycle of you know, GMO crops that can be pesticide up to wazoo and that require great fertilizer. You know, just the data, how much more fertilizer you need you know, per calorie today. You know, we've gotten to a point where it can, it's actually more efficient. It can be more efficient, more cost efficient and more you know, per calorie, I should say, calorie per acre efficient to grow organically than it is with you know, these commercialized uh, you know, solutions. So I say, look over here. I mean, I look at oil. I mean, everybody's all focused on oil and this is a far greater consequence because we stop everything. You can stop everything today and guess what? We still have a, uh, a greenhouse gas issue. I mean, that whether you, you know, believe it or not, I mean, we have X levels of, you know, CO2 in our atmosphere and that just doesn't magically, you know, come back down. I mean, we need it. But when you look at what 
just a change in agriculture can do to actually draw down, right. you know, greenhouse gas. It's, it's actually amazing. I mean, this, you know, we're all talking about all this great new technology to try to sequester this or that, or pump it into the ground. We got it. I mean, mother earth is, you know, this planet has had the, uh, this capability for a long time. I mean, you know, God created a, a pretty amazing system that, you know, when you let it work, it works. And a lot of companies are talking with generation. General Mills has got pilot projects with farms are doing this. And this is the other aspect that I didn't want to get into, but I sometimes wonder, you know, what the, uh, you know, what the real powers that be, you know, are doing out there because all these things are now in motion and it's, I don't know, it's, it's a manipulated evolution, I guess, but, you know, we can certainly make a difference. People have you know, a lot more knowledge today and we're understanding a whole heck of a lot more. And ultimately, you know, hopefully we're doing things that are you know, good for the planet, good for ourselves, eliminate. I mean, we have dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico because fertilizer runoff. Same thing happens off Florida. I'm sure, the same thing happens off California. You know, it affects marine biology, water quality. I mean, go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. But you know, all this stuff has to happen, and it does seem to be happening. But I think we can do it quicker and faster. And I certainly like it to be done in a way where it's not part of a plan for you know, corporate benefit. It's something we do sooner than later. So that number one, we're not forced to, or number two, we're not held hostage by you know, some organization, you know, government, company, corporation, whatever that you know, forces us into a path that we have to correct faster than we otherwise would, should we not start making some changes that we can make today. I like that OWC is on the proactive side of this and that you're spending a lot of time trying to help the world with where we need to go with these kinds of things. And I don't know if you have time, but I really want to talk to you about space. Um, can you take a few more minutes? Do we want to adjourn and come back another time or because no, we can take a little more. We can take some time. Sure. I um, it's one of the things about you that I, I love watching and listening to and following is your love of space. And I'm hoping that maybe you can shed some light for people who may not be as involved in all of this as you are about what the differences are between the three main companies and what they're doing. And I understand, did you tell me that you had already bought a ticket or that you're somehow involved and hoping to go out into space? Uh, So we've got SpaceX, we've got Blue Origins, and we have Virgin Galactic. And I don't know what else is out there. Can you talk to us about the difference between those companies and what they're offering? Uh, to, to some degree, I mean, SpaceX is obviously, I mean, they've rewritten, rewritten all the rules when it comes to, you know, putting people in space and Elon, I mean, he's thinking ginormous, which is awesome. It's not just about, you know, this, it's, it's really, it's his vision. I mean, he has a vision for where humanity needs to be and he's tied that into, you know, an operation that also supports is supporting and burgeoning commercial, you know, call it inventory, getting things into space, getting people into space and supporting you know, more space-based operation, but, you know, it's, that's kind of along the ways. I mean, it's something that his bigger vision, you know, getting us to Mars, you know, building, you know, truly, you know, making a commitment to a large presence in space, not just getting up there and, you know, getting, how to say, you know, not just, up, I'm going to build a way for people to get from here to the space station. I'm going to build a way to launch satellites, but actually, you know, looking at the infrastructure and the means and which is why reusability is very important. You know, Starship 15, you know, being, making that first, you know, landing without issue. Now, those are huge, huge, huge for sustainability. And sustainability is just economic sustainability so that we can get beyond, you know, how to say just being on Earth. And the technologies that are being developed, you know, 
Again, people look at the great cost. I mean, we don't launch, relatively speaking, it's not like every five minutes there's a freaking Starship being launched. You know, yes, there are resources involved. When anytime there's a, a launch to put something in there, a lot of energy is needed to get something into space. But what we what's being learned, the technologies developed for this, what we're doing right now, we, we wouldn't be doing without you know what NASA did. You now, that is a half a century ago. You know, a lot of the the, the advanced the things we so many things we take for granted, so many things that increase efficiency, reduce the need for energy. You know, these batteries, you know, longer, you know, more efficient battery cells, improve solar. All this stuff, you know, is derivative of what's being done so we can survive in space. If we can survive in space, if we can, if we can, you know, fly across, literally fly across the stars, what we can do here. You know, is greatly, greatly, greatly benefited. I mean, the medical, I mean, any place we can save energy, you know, on this planet, you know, is a, a win that is a multitude beyond, you know, the energy that's expended, you know, to, to get into space and develop these technologies, ultimately, you know, that support space exploration. So you've got Elon with, you know, this grand vision of, you know, getting us, being a part of taking us, you know, beyond Earth, Mars, beyond the solar system. You know, you have Virgin Galactic, that is honestly is has been focused on you know you know the people aspect, and you know I, I certainly look forward to going up. I was seeing a couple of years in British Galactic. It's like, I think they have a really great program. Every astronaut that's been to space, you know, I mean, they're by and large their worldview is substantially changed, and it's not that we don't see you know that I say you know, you know all the peoples as different peoples, but you know some of the uh, actually a lot of the overarching goals you don't. Now you realize, I mean, what we do here affects people elsewhere and you have a different vision or certainly you begin to act differently with, it's not just, I mean, you can't just fix something here. It's got to be fixed everywhere. You don't just fix something for one group of people. You fix something for everybody because ultimately we all have to, I mean, we, we all share this planet you know, we all need to coexist on this planet and it's a benefit to everyone, you know, where everybody is lifted. But the more people that can experience that, you know, the, the better, you know, we all you know end up being. I mean, it, it just, it changes perspective. And you move on to Origin. I mean, you know, their program is you know, certainly a little bit different. You have Virgin Galactic that launches its vehicle off a, an aircraft. The Origin is a, a traditional rocket that then, you know, parachutes back down. I know, uh, I've seen Blue Origin, you know, their, their hope is to go beyond just uh, space tourism with that platform and ultimately be able to put people on the moon. And that's, you know, of course, why it's New Shepard. And that's an, an, you know, certainly a, a great ambition as well. But I can't speak as much about the origin as I can to Virgin and the SpaceX. You know, I would say you know, Virgin Galactic has a really, to me, has a really good you know, vision and a practical uh, you know, means for bringing more accessibility and more frequent launch to be able to launch from a, uh, from a runway as opposed to a, uh, a launch pad. It certainly is very positive for that program, you know, SpaceX. You know, again, having payloads, you know, small and large and larger yet that go into space and being able to combine that with at some point bringing people into space, but still having the utility that ultimately is not just about tourism. It's about you now actually getting a permanent presence in space. You know, those are things that you know certainly inspire and excite me. Did you have a telescope when you were a little kid? Absolutely, positively. <laughs> you did. Absolutely, positively. And I say that's something else you know really appreciate you know, about Austin. Certainly, still about a lot of parts of McHenry County, you know, Woodstock, where uh, OWC is based. You know, just having the dark skies at night are, are so 
important. I mean, when you look up and see the stars, heck, you look up today and see, I mean, it's, it's hard not to look up and, and see a satellite zipping by as well. You know, those are those are things that are, you know, really, you know, being able to look above and beyond and, and dream about what's, you know, beyond this planet. And at the same time, really remembering the treasure, you know, how special, how special it is that we have life period and, you know, live on a planet with the kinds of resources and, and just the, I, I, what else can I say? You know, Dream about what's beyond, but you know, always remember and be thankful for what you know how amazing it is, you know, where we live and keeping it that way. Well, you're doing amazing things. So if you could give a message to other CEOs about how to achieve more success and how to be a little bit more like OWC is, what would you tell them? It's about the people, period. And that's the customers, you know listening to your customers, being there for your customers and making sure that you have the trust of your customers and having a team that you know, is really operates in the same vein. I mean, you, they are your customers and they're there to support your customers and we're all in it together. I mean, we may provide the, the framework, but without a team that really is building on that framework and, and making it you know, what it is, you just don't have an organization. You certainly don't have an organization that can, that can last. What's next for you and the company other than going into space <laughs> i see you doing that by the way i really can see you doing that and i think that they are building was it virgin galactic that's building the capsules the, that maintain semblance of gravity in space to try to overcome the potential degradation of our muscles was it virgin no galactic? i think that's somebody else was that somebody else mm -hmm. yeah virgin uh, yeah virgin galactic in version space, they have, uh, like I say, they've got the launch. They're also doing satellite launches. I mean, they're, they're again, it's all you know, about bringing greater accessibility to space, you know, both commercially and and passenger wise, yeah. experience wise. But predict, get out your globe, your golden globe here, and predict where you think your company is going to be going in the future for with you as the person that's at the helm and also the company as a whole. Greatest thing that we need to do, and you know, we're starting to, starting to open up for, is we got that right. I mean, it's everything is about timing and having the right team in place, and infrastructure in place. But it's mainly just bring greater accessibility, you know, both to our hardware solutions and also taking the software. I mean, there's so many things, you know, you know, under the hood that you know make OWC what OWC solutions are, and seeing greater accessibility, even those software solutions, even beyond OWC hardware. So over the next, so over the next few years, you know. Definitely shooting for much better accessibility to our solutions and so more people can benefit and you know, know why other people rave about them. We want to make sure that never changes, but also uh, you know, start bringing more solutions forth that are software-based that even if you don't start off with an OWC hardware solution, you can get the benefits of you know, what makes an OWC solution an OWC solution. So more of that is definitely uh, starting to emerge. Larry, it's always nice talking with you. And thank you for sharing the 100th episode of OWC Radio with me and with our listeners. And thank you for sponsoring it for these last couple of years. No bias here. We give a voice to creatives and to technologists who might not always be heard. I mean, yes, we interview famous people too, but we also interview the people who are the foundation of what we all do for a living. So I'm forever grateful for that. And I'm looking forward to lots more on OWC Radio. I do want to have you back again so we can talk tech. 
but I, I think that this has been wonderful. And everyone, remember what I always tell you, get up off your chair and go do something wonderful today. He's Larry O'Connor, founder and CEO of Otherworld Computing, known worldwide as OWC. I'm Serena Catania, a filmmaker, journalist, and host of OWC Radio, and we're signing off. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day, and we will talk to you again very soon. Yes, indeed. Bye, Serena. Bye.